Hi everyone, we just wanted to make a note that this podcast was recorded well before the COVID-19 crisis started here in the UK. Our lab is now shut and we're all working from home, but have also volunteered our services as scientists to help mitigate this crisis as quickly as possible. I hope you're all staying at home and staying healthy and enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to Simusir Science, the podcast where we chat to people of a scientific persuasion about their life, their work and their passion all over a couple of beers. Hi, I'm Stilly. And I'm Lou and we're both some PhD students from the Simi Lab in Glasgow, which is a collaborative lab which utilizes the merger of multiple disciplines to study the interaction between cells, materials and proteins all to gain a fundamental insight into engineering cell behavior. Our guest today is a sashimi enthusiast and general lover of Japan. Her research focuses on the creation of fibronectin-based gels which deliver growth factors, namely VEGF, for microvasculature growth. More recently, she received funding to model the bone marrow niche in vitro for HSE expansion. We would like to welcome bringer of Iberico ham, as well as Marchego cheese, Sara Trujillo. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. So tonight we're actually recording in my flat. We've prepared ourselves a bit of a feast. Um, it's nice to do things outside of work every now and again. Yeah. So Sara, you seem to actually love drawing images of stick figures on Facebook. <laughs> And they seem to be everywhere, just like just like stick figurines uh, as your cover photos. What's that all about? Yeah, I think that's a, it's just a silly thing that I like to do. So when I was with my friends, uh, you know, something funny happened that day. Uh, I like to just draw a sketch about it. All my friends liked it, so I kept going with it. Nice. Yeah. When was the last time you drew one, though? Not long ago. So yeah, I, oh. I, when I get inspired by something, <laughs> I just I do it. Are we allowed to ask you what the inspiring event was? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we usually walk home together because we live uh, in the same neighborhood. And mm. uh, once I draw him a uh, kind of a map of all the things that we do along the way, so it was kind of a funny take on the route that we take uh, every day home. That is quite honestly the <laughs> cutest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it is very cute. So have you actually, has anything come up in the lab recently that you would like to draw out? Oh yes, on Ooh. Friday, Eva and I were cleaning the freezers. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Top <laughs> gossip. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Are we being too mean? <laughs> sorry, sorry. So we, there was so much ice built up there. Uh, and I feel like it deserves sketch, yeah. Traveling, so we were joking like fire water with water because we were with uh, warm water, just trying to melt the ice. It was then yeah. we took a hammer on it. And of course, uh, another postdoc in our lab, Vinny, has criticized your mopping after the last time you yeah. de-iced de the freezers. I have to say, my mopping <laughs> skills are okay. <laughs> it's, it's the mop that is not good. <laughs> You heard it here first, people. <laughs> you 
not just work in the lab, in your free time, you have mentioned that you love playing video games, in particular because you live so far away from your family as well as your partner. What, uh, what are some suggestions you have? What's your favorite game? Uh, so I like to, <laughs> I like to play Mario. So oh, I'm a Mario fan. Do you have a specific favorite? I really like Mario Odyssey. I think it was really good take on, you know, old uh, Mario, yeah. you know, universe. Also like Mario Kart. I like to play Mario Kart with my nephew. He loves it. No! <laughs> so, so the last time I played Mario Kart was actually as a drunk drinking game. Really? And how do you turn it into a drunk drinking game? It was, we, yeah. we called it Beerio Kart. <laughs> So, university students see. <laughs> we call it the Mario Kart, <laughs> and what you do is you play Mario Kart, but you have to finish your beer before you cross the finish line, but you're not allowed to drink and drive. So you, you have to park your car, take a sip, and then continue driving, or you can, there's different tactics, like some people just park the car, down their beer, and then just like try to finish first some people like do it in like steps so it's a little bit strategic but does the so car have silly. to be at like a complete stop yeah yeah oh okay, yeah, you're okay. Not to drink so you can't drive. just like put on the gas drink with your finger off the gas and then continue driving you can't do like drink no no you have to park the car oh on park. the side yeah on the side okay <laughs> it is <laughs> sounds like a great lab bonding activity <laughs> i feel like that's not what the game was made for but <laughs> University students have that way of just twisting things all the time and like involving drinking and everything. Yeah, I think Mario in particular has the what Nintendo's done well is they both balanced the nostalgia factor, but really reimagined what Mario and all of its like related franchise looks like in with modern day capabilities. Yes, I particularly love the the take on the hat for Mario Odyssey. Yeah, the, the hat is yeah. like the perfect second player. The hat is crucial. The hat the is crucial. <laughs> yeah. The hat is the most fun to be honest. I mean, yes, I love it. <laughs> not to spend too much time on video games, but when we were looking into your work, we obviously know you quite well. I happen to have watched the acceptance speech by the Doom music composer Mick Gordon when he accepted the award for best game soundtrack in 2017. And I thought it, it really resonated with me because he talks a lot about how the workplace he was given and the group he was with made him capable of failing and made him comfortable with failing and how that really helped him to become this really, make the most innovative and instantly loved soundtrack of this like generation. And I was wondering, you know, obviously that's something really important in science is that you should feel, since science is itself built on the fact that you have to disprove all your hypotheses, which is the scientific method, but also that there's always failure. You know, how do we build that in a lab? Uh, yeah, I think that's a very interesting and, and important topic in science. It's not just the, the work of one person, it's a, it's a team effort usually. So we deal with uh, all these experiments, we work in often a multidisciplinary teams. So your expertise, maybe it's not the same as other people. So you need to have conversations with many different experts on, on different topics. So you kind of need, need to be able to work with them. Also, failure is something that it's there every day in the lab. So because we, we do 
all these uh, very complex stuff. There's lots of steps where anything can go wrong and it usually goes <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Most More of the often time. than not, it is going to yeah. go wrong. <laughs> so that's something you need to learn to, to deal with. It's just the fact that you need to accept that something went wrong and how to improve it. That's where the team it's very important. So you need to rely on other people to make you better in, in, a, in a way so you can keep going and keep doing good science. Yeah. And actually building a little bit on that failure topic, that just like brings me to think about this TED talk I was listening to by Phil Plate. He's an astronomer. He posed the question, the secret to scientific discoveries, making mistakes. He said in the, a quote here, like the price of science is admitting when you're wrong. And he emphasized the fact that making mistakes is an integral part of the scientific method. He was talking about the story where Andrew Lynn, one of the guys that first thought he found an exoplanet, ended up posting all his data and like for peer review and a lot of people came together, looked at the data and in the end they ended up disproving that the data was real, that this exoplanet actually didn't exist. So during this big conference, Andrew Lin had to stand up in front of everybody and admit that he actually made a false discovery, he made a mistake. And instead of actually people uh, saying anything negative about it, they gave him a standing ovation because as you also touched upon, it is very important to realize when you're making mistakes in order to improve. However, the issue is that in science is that you're pushed to only report success stories. And these are the ones that are getting published in high impact journals. These are the ones that are promoted. And that is a big issue. And what do you think about reporting failure? Do you think that it's important to report failure? So people are aware that things have been done that don't work. So other people don't go and say, oh, I'm going to try this. No, because yeah. we already know that this doesn't work. Failure itself is a humbling experience. As scientists, we should be able to speak to the public and say, we've done this. These are our results. And then anybody could just try to discuss about it. Um, we should be able to have the, the conversation about the, the results that, that, that we get. Well, it's quite interesting. So you've, you've talked about talking to the public about our failures, yeah. which is right, it's, it's important because I think a lot of times the public feels frustrated. A lot of studies about curing cancer in mice or curing disease in mice gets reported and they never hear up on it. And usually it's because mice don't correlate to humans. You know, we have entirely different immune systems for one. And so, but we never tell them, we never communicate that this didn't work out or we didn't communicate adequately that, that we expect it to not work out. I think it's a different mindset that scientists have where we don't expect it to work out, but we remain very hopeful. Uh, but we don't, we don't communicate this with the public. Yeah, I think that our models are obviously not perfect because we can't go and try humans straight away. So we need to find other ways to build up knowledge to be able to, you know, develop something. It sounds like it's, it's going to take more than just telling people to report failures. It feels like it's going to be an entire overhaul because in this field, you have to be protective over what you're working on, that it doesn't get stolen. And it, yeah. you're going to have to overhaul entirely that and become a more open community. And I honestly don't know how you do that. On that, science is a 
tricky business <laughs> because as a scientist, at least for me, I think we're all very, you know, idealists. So we try to do our best to, to help the public, mm -hmm. the society. We go every day to do science just because of that. But then to do this very expensive science, we need the money. So there's this uh, industry behind it that we as scientists need to learn uh, to deal with. I think that's, that's where it gets tricky in a sense that for it to be profitable, yeah. you need to show good results. And there's this pressure yeah. that we all have. I feel like we should start a journal of failed experiments. Oh God, what would you call it? <laughs> I mean, that would be, well, to be honest, that would be quite good. Like, It'd be difficult organizing it in a way that it would be cool. The issue with um, not being able to report failure, although it is such an integral part of the scientific method, as we just talked about, is scientists try to hide their failures a little bit. You know, I don't know if you guys agree with me, but... Sometimes you see in journals people trying to repeat experiments that didn't actually work out because they they haven't been 100% truthfully reported often. Or it's hidden in the appendix, and these appendixes get really large. Yeah. If that, I mean, if it's hidden in the appendix, that's a good day. Exactly. Yeah, true. And also sometimes you try to repeat an experiment that supposedly works, and there's not enough methodology written yeah. for you to, to really do it. I think another side of the hidden paper is uh, obviously publishing papers doesn't agree very well with patenting. You can't put what you're patenting into your papers. And so oftentimes when you're wondering how someone's doing something in a paper, you'll find out that the group is patenting that technology. I mean, so Sarah, you're currently actually uh, hoping to patent part of your PhD project right now, but you're also simultaneously publishing it in, um, I know we can't say it, but a reputable journal, a very good journal. If you want to publish something because you, we as scientists need to report these things, we need to make it uh, at the same time as we're developing the patent or get the patent and then publish. And you're obviously having to juggle because patenting is a very lengthy process, as is uh, submitting to a paper, but you need to make sure you get into that paper before anyone who's been to a talk maybe tries your research or time has moved on enough that other people are using or doing similar things. And all of this stress is on the researcher, of course. It's not spread across the industry. Often these, the patent lawyers, they're not scientists. So how can you convey to them what's novel and what's not. I, I've heard a recent case where they disregarded what you, the researcher thought was novel and instead picked on something that really wasn't, but they felt like it was. Yeah, there's some very fine line um, <laughs> between what I think it's novel or you think it's novel. So when we're talking to lawyers, we need to go with uh, our proposal and then with all the literature that surrounds our research. And they, based on this, they need to decide whether or not there's an inventive step, something that cannot be thought from the literature. So I think it's difficult. Different people could have different opinions on where this inventive step <laughs> comes from. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just a matter of having um, an honest conversation with patenting team, just a little bit of luck. So you're very accomplished. Kano, 
get down. You had a very successful PhD, which was incredible and very inspiring, but you also actually won an, is it an award for best PhD thesis of the year. Yeah. Uh, as Lou mentioned, uh, <laughs> your research is overall very well received um, and tends to impress audiences anywhere you go if you give a speech. Giving a good presentation is a skill, and obviously as a good researcher, you have a lot to show. Mm -hmm. But what I was most impressed by for you was the way you were able to address the questions. I know I've gone to a couple of your talks where you're given quite difficult questions, mm -hmm. and not only have you eloquently answered it, but you've also been able to name papers that point towards the answer. Yeah. And that, that really impressed me. That was a, yeah, that is, that's a goal to strive for. That is so awesome. But So we said that uh, you work on fibronectin gels. What is some one of the surprising aspects of your work on fibronectin gels? So my PhD thesis was about uh, developing this new uh, hydrogel system. So hydrogel is just a polymeric network that uh, contains lots of water. And we wanted to use this as a mimetic of the extracellular matrix, just uh, you know, to be able to control different physical chemical aspects. And one of the key parts of developing this new material was the incorporation of a full protein inside. Usually, people in literature, what they do is to just add small parts of proteins, uh, small peptides or fragments of proteins, and. To work with full proteins, it's a challenge because you know it's more difficult than working with smaller pieces. But I think it, it was good in the end. It was a good project, and we got to develop this system where we could control different uh, things, like for example mechanical properties. And then fibronectin here, what we wanted to do was to be able to sequester growth factors, which is one of the main topics in our lab. I think uh, we got good data from, from it. I think the most silly experiment that I really enjoyed was this one <laughs> release experiment I did. That was the first time I had some real data showing that the fibronectin gels were able to sequester growth factors. That was a defining moment, I think, for my thesis and for, for myself. So I was very happy with that. It was a, you know, a key thing that I achieved that led me to you know, continue to develop the system. You're a very inspiring woman. How is it, how is the STEM scene for women? It's, uh, it's difficult, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's a very interesting question and something that I'm very passionate about is gender equality and I think that the STEM field needs to work a lot on, on it. For example, if you look at our center, if you look at PhDs, uh, students and postdocs, more or less we are 50-50 men and women, but then if you look to the PI level, it goes down quite a lot. So in our center we only have two women from the 11 PIs yeah. uh, that are in the team, so... And none of them are very senior. Well, no, one of, them, one of them's fairly senior. We've got Catherine Berry. Yeah. But I mean, other than that, you know, there's not a lot of representation, especially at the very high levels across the university, actually. Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah, I think in, in our school, it's, it's very clear <laughs> yeah. that there are not many professors that are women. Yeah. Uh, representation and is very important. School of Chemistry, too. I know for School of Chemistry, the majority of the undergrads and even PhD students will be female, and yet almost none of them carry on to become PIs. 
Yeah, so there's, there's something that needs to be done. I'm a person that I like to look up to other successful women. I enjoy seeing women out there that are crushing it. Yes, just seeing them there makes you think that you can also do it. So I think it's yeah. very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, do, what do you say the boundaries are well, like for that cause of this? I don't know if it's just a general bias or, you know, how the society is built. There's different gender roles that we kind of grow up learning that we need to fulfill. And I think that we're living now in a different years. Yeah, that it's like a defining moment for, for us women. Yeah. Just to, you know, step up and can do, I, can yeah. I do it. Do you see, do you ever see or feel that there's differences in how you're treated versus male postdoc? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not just in science, but yeah. in, in your daily life, you kind of oh, for see sure. it everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I know I know that you, Lou, have quite an interesting story uh, in, in your high school, actually. That no, it was at university. At university. In undergrad, we had a lot of marked labs and marked coursework, and this was often done face-to-face -face with your marker. And we were set into uh, lab partners, so little pairs. <laughs> so we were in pairs working in our lab, and my lab partner, he came in very hungover, said he hadn't done the work for that lab session. So I offered for him to just copy mine, because uh, and if we went distance enough, then the, the person marking would probably even forget that it read exactly the same. And now, not that I'm endorsing plagiarism in any form, but this is what happened. So we went to have our work marked, and although it was word for word the same work, and there was no question in answering, I received two marks lower out of 20 than, um, oh. than he did. And I think, and it from a, a male marker. And so I think it makes a big difference what the makeup is of, the gender makeup of your markers and your superiors is. So I think that one key uh, point would be to recognize that you have those biases. Mm -hmm. So we all will have them because we we've all grown in the same society. Yeah. So just to be able to accept that you make those mistakes, that you're not conscious about, you know, <laughs> yeah. if there's something that happens. <laughs> Subconsciously. Yeah, way before you're, you're grading or marking or whatever you're doing after, but just to know that, that you do it makes a difference because you can go a step back and rethink what you're doing and are yeah. you marking this differently because of uh, gender yeah. bias or not? Maybe, maybe not, but yeah. So um, what would you say, what would be the take-home message for the male population out there when they treat women in a certain way in STEM or like how should they try to think about the way they treat women and stuff? I don't know. I think they should they should be willing to learn more about the, the differences that are real and what they are and just to just to know what we have to deal with. I think that's very important. And then they need to decide if they want to continue behaving. In the culture. Yeah, yeah, or trying to make a difference. I think that those are just excuses to kind of not to deal with, with the root mm. of the differences that, that, that we have. Yeah, it's probably not as bad as 
50 years okay. ago, of course. There's still a difference. Um, we're half of the population, so why? Exactly. Uh, well, at least you're kicking ass and you're working on great projects. And one really of the great, great projects. projects, one of the new exciting projects you're working on, Sarah, is about HSC expansion. HSC stands for... Hematopoietic stem cells. Great. Why is it important to expand hematopoietic yeah. stem cells? Yeah, so this project focuses on developing an in vitro bone marrow niche for HSC culture in, in general. So we've said HSCs are hematopoietic stem cells, so these are progenitors of blood cells. They're very tricky cells because they don't like to grow in vitro in the lab. So they either differentiate very quickly or yeah, yeah, they do that, they differentiate. Uh, you can't keep them. And one of the goals of the project is either to maintain their phenotype, which means just to maintain their progenitor characteristics, or if possible, to proliferate them, to expand them, to grow them. And this is very important if uh, we want to first to model uh, diseases, uh, and also if we want to use these HSCs as a tool to deal with different blood-related uh, diseases. So I'm sure you've heard of bone marrow transplants. Uh, yeah, sometimes you know, it's, it's not ideal, so if we could get enough uh, of these cells to repopulate uh, bone marrow, that's it. So what you're saying is if somebody has leukemia and needs a bone marrow transplant, you could just take their HSCs and then expand them in the lab and then re-inject them into the patient and heal them. That could be, yeah, that could be an idea, yes. That's really cool. That's really exciting. I think That's we should really stress cool. that HSC expansion is not currently possible, that this is a really exciting project <laughs> yeah. with like real ramifications for the general public. I yeah. Mean, Exactly. Exactly. We don't want to be spreading, <laughs> spreading uh, false um, hopes oh, quite not yet. yet. Not yet. Quite yet. Yeah, but it's I mean, not at the stage yet where you can actually stage, right. clinically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited about the project. I mean, yeah, the project is, I think it's very cool, but it's also very challenging, so we'll see. Yeah, there are many things uh, that can affect, so we need to tackle one at a time. Yeah, yeah we'll see. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> said that science is a very creative endeavor and I definitely feel that but by many classical definitions of art it's actually not in fact oftentimes uh, they will use science as an example of how science is not an art you know defining something by what it's not would you disagree with that would you would you say that science is art I think uh, I think science is a creative uh, field I don't know if I would define it as art or, or not but it has many artistic things just uh, the way we we need to deal with complex questions mm -hmm. uh, we need to think outside of the box sometimes yeah. so we need to well I feel like if you well, I feel like you, if you think it's art, you can claim it's art. <laughs> I've been told that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and the thing is, like, there's whole courses of how to artistically showcase your science or how to make art about your science. And I think that can actually be a very useful tool to communicate your science to the general population as well, yeah. maybe. I don't know what you guys think about that. Or even to each other, I mean. Yeah. But actually, you know what? I remember now, I was listening to an interview, funnily enough, from Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> and, 
He did say... This is my favorite source that we've used so far. <laughs> he said that anything that moves you is art. And I kind of... I, I mean, science definitely moves people. I think... Maybe. I think because science asks the question, science is an art. Yeah. And because there's not a defined answer to that question. You know, mm -hmm. history has defined answers. You know, there's only what is there, whereas science has so many possible potentials and so many truths that are not yet known. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. agree. There is plenty, actually, people have tried to communicate science throughout in the past in the form <laughs> of video games and movies. What do you think the representation of science is in like video games or movies? Ooh, uh, I think it's not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> There's this stereotype always, no, in movies and oh, yeah. um, video games where there's these crazy scientists that do, I don't know, destroy the world. Destroy the world or... Yeah, why do they all have a god complex? Why does Doc Ock and Spider-Man <laughs> end up wanting to destroy the world instead of like healing like paraplegic people or like helping paraplegic people? Why is, yeah. why are people portrayed like that? Why are scientists portrayed like I that? I don't know, I think we are misunderstood uh, <laughs> by society in general. So we, we deal with very important topics. We have sort of power because, you know, knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. And with great power comes great yeah, responsibility. Okay. So I think that <laughs> it's very easy to just go that route if you're mm -hmm. creating a movie or whatever. That's true. I mean, yeah. people with a lot of power and a lot of... Probably bad for speaking for themselves, you know, we're, yeah. we're not great at communicating yeah. to the greater public about Yes, and definitely. I do think that the onus is very much on us uh, Scientists to communicate things properly and I think that one of the main problems is that sometimes we don't take the general public as seriously I guess that's why you're listening to this podcast. We are yeah. informed about all things science yeah. and all the problems surrounding science <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. Do think that's something that we're not doing right mm -hmm. uh, and it's just to be able to explain our research to the general public and to take their opinions on the research as well or to be able just to explain why we do what we do and why it's important yeah. and that's something that we need to work on a lot i don't know why there's this gap between scientists and society and general public yeah i mean professors sometimes can't even be bothered teaching to, oh, to yeah. like to like students like let alone the public yeah but it, it's a shame because i feel like every single person and like that's born has some sort of um question something and like that is just like you know that's the first step in a scientific discovery like you you question something you hypothesize about something you try to understand why this is happening and I think like even like small kids all of them all of them they just try to discover the world for like the way they see it and like try to understand what's going on so I think that every person is interested in some capacity in science, whether they know that or not, and it's up to us to make this accessible to them. Yeah, kind of uh, feed a little bit the curiosity that uh, mm -hmm. these people, yeah. 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 Do you have? Did you have like an original curiosity as a child? I mean, of course, you all children are curious and ask a lot of questions. But what were your curiosities and questions? I don't know. Yeah, my sister had a, a microscope, like a. 
toy. Oh. And I used to cut lots of very thin slices of fruits just to look oh. at them. And no bugs, no, no, no fly wings <laughs> no or fly something. Wings. <laughs> that was, for me, it was discovering a whole new world to see all the structures. That's awesome. Very, very cool. Like onion skin. I remember yeah. that was one of the yeah. first ones I did on it. I can see like all the single cells, oh. like in the layer between. No, I, did you have one, Lou? Oh, my original curiosity? Yeah. My dad had a, a telescope and mm. it was always the most special night when we get the telescope out. Um, my father has a immense capability of being very patient and a good teacher. Mm -hmm. It was good. Yeah. How about you, Stilly? I think, I think I was just generally a very geeky kid, to be honest. <laughs> I can see that. I was like very... <laughs> Very curious about anything. I used to have everything. Like I used to have all books, all sort of books about astronauts and space, uh, as well as animals and bugs and plants and everything that was like biology related. But also, I used to build like ancient Greek models of boats with my grandfather that you could actually like. No. They were like re not not exactly like to scale. They were just like to kid scale, so you could actually. I, I could play with them and one of them we, I remember we like built a trireum in my garden and you could even like put the sail up and down what? and it was really 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 cool I mean that's not exactly science but it's like engineering sort of yeah. in the stem field and my my dad also my no no sorry my granddad he also keeps honeybees and he was always very passionately talking about everything surrounding that so it was it was not exactly like science as I do it now but it was still kind of like an incentive to look more into like the world and the natural world yeah. so do you have a, a favorite and the least favorite representation of a scientist or science in movies or games Ooh. Um, a favorite I would say have you seen Orphan Black Yes, yes I have. So there's a character that's called Cosima. Mm -hmm. I really like that character. She is really kick-ass, yeah. but smart. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the few examples that I could connect a little bit more with in this, as a scientist. Yeah. I don't know, the, my least favorite, <laughs> the rest. <laughs> All of the others. Uh, can I put, I can't remember the movie, but can I put forward Kevin Bacon when he the shakes... Invisible Man? <laughs> the Invisible Man. <laughs> where he discovers the power to become invisible by having a simulation on his computer that shakes proteins until they fall apart. Until one doesn't. Uh, and then he uses his power of invisibility to... Uh, watch his female co-worker naked. I mean, that's a pretty bad representation that's of science. Yeah, that's terrible. That's just, <laughs> that's just plain out creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, that raises the question. Sometimes science in movies is very inaccurate. And sometimes the, the scientist is presented as the bad, the bad guy, but sometimes it's just in, inaccurate, but the actual intention is to make it inspiring for future generations. For example, Iron Man, I don't know. It's mm. like it's like sort of scientific. I mean, I know it's sci-fi, but like it, it it does suggest that things like that are in some way possible or scientific. I think it's the only movie that's made engineering cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <would> engineering. <laughs> Do you think it is ethical to portray science inaccurate if the intention is to make it inspiring? 
here in general. So, who's your favorite PhD student? I don't have any favorites. <laughs> Liar. Liar. We it's know. Stillian Lu. Wait, current PhD students? Your favorite song? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go for the English speakers. I'm gonna go with Feeling Good, Nina Simone. I've never heard that I song. Heard song. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to listen to it. Nice. Feeling good. Nice. nice. Really, we ask these questions just to find out your favorite PhD student, but okay. yeah. So now for everyone's favorite game, guess the impact factor. Right now, Manuel has two out of five and Matt has three out of five. So mm. three out of five is the score to beat. Yeah, Sarah. I'm not gonna do very well in <laughs> this game. Ooh, okay. Yes. I think we should start off with the Journal of Investigative Dermatology. Okay. I want to say 1.3. Oof, 6.29. I will go with the International Journal of Fuzzy Systems. Fuzzy Systems. <laughs> <laughs> that is a thing. I feel like that's a 0.5. 0.5, we'll give it to you. It's a 0.06, that's one out of five. Yes. Uh, one out of two, two so, so three more to go. I will go with yeah. another one. The journal called Small, with their tagline, no small matter. Yeah, that's uh, that journal I know. Actually. <laughs> you know this journal? <laughs> yes, I do. And I kind of want to be bold here. <laughs> I'm gonna say 10.1. <laughs> 10.856, you're getting that for you're sure. That for Definitely. Sure. Now, we're gonna throw you a bit of a curveball. Okay. So since you're in the uh, the Journal of Fashion Technology and Textile Engineering. Right, yeah, of course, <laughs> I know it. <laughs> I want to say also zero point something. Point what thing? Point eight. Ooh, what? Mm. You're just out of range. 0.296. There's no actual. There's no range that we set. It's just our gut Oh, we do say plus or minus 0.5. Oh yeah, we have said that. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's just oh. Just out of range. What did you say again? I'm feeling robbed. 0.7. 0.8. She said. Well, I mean, if we round up 0.3, then that's still in range. I am willing to give that to you. Thank you. Okay, fine. Three out of four. Three Phenomenal. out of four. And last but not least, on a po let's finish on a positive note. No, no. There is this journal called Positivity. I feel I shouldn't be very positive after here. I'm gonna say one, 1.3. 1 0.88. Ah. If you'd only stuck with just one. <laughs> yeah, if it was just one, you would okay. get it. But you three out of five, that uh, you're top of the leaderboard together with Matt Dalby. Yeah. Congratulations. Good to be. Congratulations. You. That's awesome. Well, we talked today about so many things. We talked about failure, the importance of failure in science, and that was awesome. We talked about... Communicating your science and creativity within science. <laughs> But what is a, what is something you would like to tell our listeners? What is some what your take home message for them? I think that my take home message is that if you want to do science, uh, you really love you know being creative, um, playing around with very expensive things. 
Just do it. Thank our wonderful guest, Sarah, for being here. That was amazing. We'd also love to thank Claire, our wonderful executive producer, who's getting married this weekend, as well as the Similab and all our listeners. So as always, you can find the our lab, the Similab, on Twitter and Instagram at the Glasgow Simi. Yeah, our Instagrams, or our personal Instagrams, are that Schoolfield girl. And Stilly from Greece. Yeah. The music for this podcast was provided by Jaren Falaidi. You can uh, follow uh, Jaren's work on opretet.com. Uh, that is O P R E T E T dot com. Sorry, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where can they find you? Well, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram. So on Twitter, I'm at Satrumu, S-A-T-R-U-M-U. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Instagram, I am Sarah Trujillo. Nice. Awesome. And with that, we'll leave you and hope you're going to have a wonderful day.